There have been protests in the U.S. city of Minneapolis after a young black man was shot dead by police. Minneapolis is where the trial of the officer accused of killing George Floyd is taking place. In this latest incident, a 20-year-old man died after crashing his car, having been shot by an officer moments before. Investigators say the police officer thought she was using her taser. Our correspondent, Barbara Plett-Usher, is live in Minneapolis for us tonight. Barbara. Clive, city officials are saying that this shooting, which may have been a tragic mistake, could not have happened at a worse time given the tensions over the George Floyd case. Police here have been reinforcing their station all day after the protests that took place last night. And the mayor of Minneapolis has called a state of emergency and issued an order for a curfew later tonight. The president, Joe Biden, has spoken. He says he knows that the pain, the anger, the trauma, they're real, but that does not justify looting and violence. So this is an evolving situation, uh, but here is the latest. These have become familiar scenes in a year of civil unrest over police violence, with every deadly encounter reigniting a smoldering anger. There's a standoff between police and protesters here. Smoke bombs have been fired, tear gas have been fired after a shooting, another police shooting of a black man in Minnesota. That man was Dante Wright, 20 years old, of mixed race. With the city already on edge over the trial of the George Floyd killing, police moved quickly to release footage from the camera worn by the officer involved in the shooting. It shows that Mr. Wright was pulled over for a minor offense. That escalated when police decided to arrest him on a previous warrant. He tried to run. But then, a fatal mistake, the police chief said. The officer, while struggling with Mr. Wright, shouts, Taser, Taser. During this encounter, however, the officer drew their handgun instead of their Taser. It is my belief that the officer had the intention to deploy their Taser, but instead shot Mr. Wright with a single bullet. This appears to me, from what I viewed and the officer's reaction and distress immediately after, that this was an accidental discharge. In the moments before this tragedy, Mr. Wright's mother had been on the phone with him. A minute later, I called and his girlfriend answered, which was the passenger in the car, and said that he'd been shot. And he, she put it on the driver's side and my son was laying there lifeless. And then I said, where are you? And she said, I don't know. During the unrest that followed, some shops were looted, a reminder of the property damage after George Floyd's death last year. The prosecution is wrapping up its case in that trial. There's concern about what sort of fallout the verdict might trigger and questions about whether it will impact the way police operate in America. Barbara Plett Usher, BBC News, Minneapolis. Welcome to week 12. Labyrinth, come in.
Welcome to week 12 of Forensic Psychology. If I seemed exasperated in the opening intro, it was purposeful. We, the events of this week, I, I am losing patience with starting lectures by saying, this week's lecture's super timely and super important. I, I don't, I don't know why, every fucking week, every fucking week, it, it, it just happens every week at this point. So, this week's lecture is the lecture that I was, I'll be honest, it's the lecture I was most excited about giving, and also probably the most nervous about giving. Um, and the reason is, I, I mean, we're seeing it, it, as we speak right now, we are seeing it. We are, when there is a, the, you can already see how much I'm struggling with this. At the moment, we are living in a time where we are unable to engage in a nuanced discussion around police behaviour. To be honest, I don't blame society. I, I, can, I can see where it comes from. Perhaps it comes, I can see where the, the frustration, perhaps, or the exasperation, perhaps, or whatever it is. And I can see both sides of this one. Uh, but at the moment, we are in a, in, at the, this last 12 months specifically, we are in an environment in which we are unable to objectively evaluate police behaviour. And instead, we find ourselves in a in a realm of thinking where the the outcome is dictating our perception of the causes and the behaviour. Oh, hey you, you join you joining this lecture? All right then, good. Happy to have you here. Um, and and that that's just really problematic. And so this week's lecture is on decision making. And this is an area that I study immensely. This is the, my PhD is on decision making, my book is on decision making, my publications are on decision making, or the training I do for police officers is on decision making. And all of it is around situations like we are seeing, lovely, situations like we are seeing right now, today, everything that's going on today. And it's about how do we, well, there's many aspects of it. How do we, let's start from the, from the, from the front backwards, from the, from the end backwards, right? How do we evaluate a police decision? So after a decision has been made that has a negative outcome, how do we evaluate and understand if the police officer made a crap and bad decision, and I'm not saying that those aren't the case, very often that can be the case, a crap decision was made, and a bad outcome occurred, and a police officer needs to be held, held responsible, needs to be held culpable. However, at the same time, there are instances in which there is a, the best possible decision made in a very, very shit situation. And they can have bad outcomes as well. And how do we evaluate which of those two processes occurred? What does the psychology look like? What does the science look like? Working back from that, how do we train police officers to make those kind of decisions to the best of their ability when they are put in those situations, right? So what does training for that look like? How do we select officers who are the best at making those kind of decisions, right? Prior to that, how do we select, a, a, how do we have an organisational culture that supports officers or encourages officers 
to make the best decisions for the correct reasons when those situations emerge. And broader, how as a society do we handle this? It, it, it's, the, I'm not saying it's easy. It's so, so fucking hard. But that is what we need to be... That is what the conversation needs right now, is it needs, it needs to have that level of granularity. And to be honest, it needs to have some honest goddamn truths to it. And so my goal this week, my goal this week is to try my very hardest to talk you through the psychology of police decision making, what it entails, what it, what it looks like. How do we conceptualise, define these kind of situations that the police officers are in and how do we judge whether or not they did it well or not. We're going to borrow a lot from the military psychology literature, which kind of precedes this a little bit, then look at the police literature, and then, you know, even look at how it kind of relates to human decision-making in general. And if we get time, we can go into criminal decision-making, which, which at times can, can borrow the similar, a similar framework. But the whole week leverages on this single point, basically, of when, when, the, uh, when uncertainty is high, and all possible courses of action have the potential to be negative. How do we judge and evaluate the what the person did in that situation? And, and, and so much of it comes down to that. So look, I really hope you enjoyed this lecture. What we're going to do is uh, right now I'm going to jump into a documentary. As I know you asked for a few more documentaries and I love them. They, they changed the tune up. So we're going to watch a documentary of a case in Afghanistan. And it's the, it, it's the, the documentary is called Leavenworth. And we're just going to watch uh, one single episode. It's actually a six-part series on stars. And it is uh, an instance of um, a decision in Afghanistan around the use of force with a civilian population. Uh, and all of the kind of the outcomes and the aftermath. We hear from the decision maker. We hear from his platoon. But what I want you to get a sense of, and I think this is really important as we go into Thursday's lecture, is the complexity of the environment in which people are making decisions uh, and after the documentary I'll jump back in and I'll give you some kind of some my view on it you may actually know you may actually realize that I'm actually in the documentary I was asked to, to provide kind of expert analysis for it so I pop up occasionally and say something probably stupid but there we go uh, and afterwards let's look at kind of what it boils down to and the goal of this week's lecture is to define the problem space when it comes to what real life high stakes decisions look like. And then on Thursday, we're going to get into the psychology. All right, I'll skip over to Leavenworth. Enjoy. Three men approached his platoon on motorcycles. Lieutenant Clint Lawrence gave the order to open fire. Now serving a 20 year prison sentence. I was just the army scapegoat. Clint's version of events is just pure bullshit. He was told all of his life that being gay was a sin. We started preparing to go to Afghanistan. It's a horn's nest. Absolute and utter chaos. Clint being Clint was going to go all the way in. It was terrifying. An infantry platoon leader was injured. My commander told me that you need to go in strong and you need to police them up. We were apprehensive, to say the least. The soldiers have seen a lot more combat than I had. Hey, man, give him a shot. Give him a shot. Having the opportunity to lead soldiers in combat, that is exciting to a certain extent until people start dying.
day. It's always been a, a motivating factor for me uh, to prove that I am at least as good as everybody else and surpass other people. I do believe it helped his personal growth, just having the experience of going overseas and working with all sorts of different individuals of different nationalities, helped them in becoming, okay, what's his sexuality? But um, I think he was a lot closer to his family than I was. So for him, having support was very important. Knowing about the religious background and how his family grew up and everything, it must have been a hard conversation. Clint came to me when he came home from Korea on his first deployment and he told me that he was gay. It took me years of begging him and trying to talk him through and asking him to, to let someone else know. He had told Jamie several years before he told me. And he said, well, what do you have to say? You're going to talk to me? Why wouldn't I? He said, I want to tell you, there's not anything that you could do or say that's going to change the way I feel about you at all. He felt safe and secure with Aunt Jean. And it was only until he found someone in his life that was worth it to be able to come out and let the rest of his family know. It took me several years to get into a relationship. It was after I transitioned to be an officer. And I had met someone I was exclusive with. And by this time, I think I was 25 or 26. So Clint and I, we met on a dating website a long time ago. I don't think it exists anymore. I think that's how long ago it was. We actually we went to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and I just remember thinking that this guy was so goofy. When I first met him, he was working at Target. And he kept on saying he wanted to go to nursing school. So I'm like, all right, you're going to nursing school. So what do we have to do? Yeah, Clint was, <laughs> Clint was really good at, at pushing in a lot of ways. He wanted to see me finish my degree. He wanted me to think about next steps. So I pretty much like forced his hand, made, made him do all the applications and everything, which his mom thought I was, you know, awesome for because she's a nurse. It was a good thing because he kept me on track, you know, when I wanted to stop because nursing school it was very intense. And he kept me going. He wanted us to be able to grow together. That was always his goal. We would talk about maybe one day getting married and having kids. Clint was happy when he was with Philip. He said the only thing that they were having issues about was Philip was openly gay to where he couldn't be because he couldn't just go walk hand in hand with his boyfriend down the street, you know? We had differing views, and it was very difficult to keep that hidden. I was open to my family. I was open to the people I worked with. Clint was down to both his Aunt Jean and his cousin Jamie. And I think that helped him accept himself to the degree that he did. I found it was a lot easier when you had support. And so that's that's when I was able to come out to my family. Did I know Clint was gay? I knew I was gay for sure. Uh, and I knew Clint was really sassy. You know, he's got a little too much pizzazz to just be like a normal guy. I told him, I said, well, why didn't you tell me when when you figured this out? 
We could have went and, I mean, had manicures and pedicures, and I could have done your makeup. Well, hold on now. He said, you know, there's different kinds of gays, and I'm not like that. He, you know, he's just like, I have to talk to you, and he's so solemn and so serious, and I'm like, yeah, I know you're gay. Like, it's fine. There were four of us in that little group, the two sets of brothers, and three of us ended up being gay. So poor Cody was the lone man out. When I found out, I was kind of relieved. I kind of had a sigh, like, so you're telling me he didn't hate me all these years, he was just uncomfortable with himself? Well, that makes a lot more sense. Difficult is not even the word. Not anything against our family. We come from fantastic people. But they didn't know about who we really were. That's the demon that is homosexuality. People say it's this evil curse. No, the curse of it is it isolates you from everyone and, and everything that you know. You know, my grandma is probably one of the most spiritual, religious persons, you know, that I've ever met. And she said, look, God created you, and he doesn't make mistakes. Part of his family was very accepting and loving. And one of the most important family members in his life had a very hard time with it in a way that sent a message that it was shameful and it was something that he should be embarrassed about and that it needed to change. Well, love outweighs anything. <laughs> and it was one of the hardest days of my life for me to hear him say that he was gay. Mommy just got very angry. Um, she didn't want to hear about it. She didn't want to even think about it. She said some really, you know, hurtful things, and it, it really dug deep. And my dad stayed silent. He always takes cues from my mom. Just to be honest with you, I don't, you know, I, to me, he could have made any decision in life besides that, and, and you know, it would have been better. I'm not going to ever tell him, it's okay, son, to be that way. It's okay. He'll never hear me say that. But he will hear me say, hey, I don't care if you are that way, son. I still love you. I love my son, but I, I just believe that, um, I love him no matter what, but I don't believe in the gay. I don't believe in the gay. I feel like his mother pushed him away a little bit and has resisted it. And still to this day, she's not really accepting of it. So I feel like she feels like, you know, he's, he's gonna be cured. I've read a book said, know a lot of people that God has totally reversed that in them when they get put God in their life and put God first. And so, that's my personal belief. I think his mom not accepting it hurt him really bad. I think that contributed to him not feeling secure enough to come out in the military because if your own mother can't accept it, how can these uber masculine men accept it? There's a culture of conformity in the military from day one. They literally take away all of your possessions and give you a uniform. You are literally all the same. And that is done, I think, to take away your personal interests and replace them with a collective interest. Yes, the military is a conformist culture, and that's a good thing. But gays and lesbians can conform to military standards just as well as anybody else. You know, what makes a good soldier? Well, this is sort of followership, you know, and the individual's fit and competent, knows his tasks and what's in your rucksack. Where is the ammunition? Where is the 
blood plasma. Ready to go. Everybody's the same. So the question about conformity isn't, do you have the exact same identity as the next person? It's, can you follow orders and obey military rules and standards? I was the only liberal in a fucking infantry platoon, right? So I was up against a lot. You know, and I was always kind of talking on this level, like not really can't make sense of this. And they're just like, shut the fuck up, doc. Just, you know, just do what you're fucking told. That's what you do. Well, the army is the country's biggest bureaucracy. So of course it's, you know, it's a huge boat that turns slowly. Uh, I actually think considering that it does pretty good. Today, 436 young ladies become officers in the United States Army. I think the military will abide by bias as long as civilian society lets it. So we were allowed to be racist and segregationist in the Army as long as we were racist and segregationist in our wider society. Integration of the armed forces. Black soldiers and white soldiers sharing mess halls. And we were allowed to be homophobic as long as that was tolerated. Seaman Alan Schindler was beaten to death in this public lavatory near the base. Alan Schindler had a secret. He was gay. They beat him to death. They beat him beyond recognition. The record of harassment in the military is horrendous. There were some service members who were murdered. There were others who were raped. Many others who were uh, beaten up. And it was very difficult for gays and lesbians to serve with that sword hanging over their heads. The gays and the military, the two don't go together. Plant very much felt concerned for his safety. And back then, I do believe it was well-founded. On 5 July 1999, the Army suffered the loss of a soldier as a result of a senseless and a brutal crime. He was scared to come out because he was afraid that there'd be some sort of action taken against him, whether it be physical, whether it be not assigning him to a platoon because, well, who wants the gay guy in the platoon? President Clinton retreated from his campaign promise to lift the ban on gays in the military. He has adopted a version of the policy known as don't ask, don't tell. Serving under Don't Ask, Don't Tell was difficult. The new policy does not penalize anyone for being gay, but only for engaging in homosexual conduct. If someone harassed you for being gay or lesbian, and you reported that harassment to commanders, you yourself would be fired for being gay. And so that policy itself was a green light for harassment and abuse. The potential exists for disruption to the successful execution of our current combat mission Military leaders knew that gays and lesbians did not harm the military, but they made up phony arguments about gays and lesbians harming the military because they wanted to conceal the real reason for their opposition, which was animus. This is harmful during a time of war and irresponsible manner in which to change policies that the Commandant of the Marine Corps has stated could actually risk lives. The angry rhetoric made it more dangerous for gays and lesbians in the military by depicting them as sexual predators and depicting their presence in the military as harmful to national security. Distractions cost Marines lives, cost Marines lives. When a workplace is infused with harassment and threats and intimidation, that harassment uh, is quickly uh, internalized by many people and makes it harder to do your job. I was trying to get out of the Army on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But, you know, Obama changed the policy and everything right as I put in my request to get out. So that was kind of kiboshed. Don't Ask, Don't Tell wasn't in place when Amy Clinton met. But well, he probably conducted himself the same way he did after Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
if a gay man or lesbian uh, chooses to remain in the closet now, uh, there's probably a very good reason to be careful about how they manage uh, knowledge of their sexual orientation. Generally, when people learn that about you, they think you're weaker. People start treating you differently. And that's what pisses me off about that, is people assume that weakness and being gay are the same thing. The way Clint handled it is that it was easier just to fly under the radar. Or like if we were at a bar that was in Fayetteville, somewhere around Fort Bragg, he would be conscious on where he would sit and his demeanor would change a little bit. It was very hurtful. He didn't understand the military. He had no connection to the military. So but he couldn't put up with it. And so he gave me a lot of grief, a lot of stuff that um, could have been avoided. I didn't like being put back in the closet. I wanted to go to dinner and sit next to my boyfriend and have a meal without feeling judged. I think he saw how unhappy his double life made me, and he couldn't be happy because he couldn't be open. There are lots of things where some essence of who you are, you are not living externally. Maybe you're interested in people of the same gender sexually, but I don't want to let anyone know. So then you have to create a barrier that says, okay, externally to belong in this environment, I think I'm going to act like a card-carrying heterosexual. And when you see the, this disparity, it inevitably leads to real suffering. There's a huge amount of anxiety or depression or anger about it. The same thing would be true in battle as well, only it's intensified because belonging actually is about survival. And belonging to these guys is going to be the difference between life and death. He was going to Afghanistan. He said, it's going to be a quick deployment. It's only going to be nine months, which to me, I was like, nine months? It's a long deployment. It's probably one of the hardest things I ever had to get through. And he called me one day. And he said, Mom, he said, I just got the orders that I'm going to be re replacing a lieutenant. It's in a very bad area. He said it's just ran by the Taliban. Just about every lieutenant and NCO, they would ask where you're going, and I would tell them where, and they'd be like, whoa, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. Ojari and Panjway were two districts that were very heavily vegetated. It was extremely extremely difficult to operate. It was the sort of the equivalent of what in the World War II was hedgerows. Uh, you had these just all going for many, many miles. Uh, this is not where you just sort of take the hill, plant the flag, and go home to a victory parade. It was an active area as far as uh, war fighting. Uh, it seemed every day our troops were getting into contact with the enemy. There was a lot of uh, IEDs being buried. That's what I saw mostly because of where I worked. I could see that. They could, we could view them doing that. We uh, took over a strong point. It was like the most rudimentary piece of tactical infrastructure you could possibly have. And uh, one of the things that really struck me was the first time I like, walked around the perimeter of the strong point, I saw shell casings all around the ground. And that means that the unit that we were replacing was fighting from the walls of our strong point. The previous unit had the enemy literally in the bushes around our strong point, attacking. So it, it had been a very, very kinetic area before we got there. 
when Clint found out that he was going to be a platoon leader, uh, he took it upon himself to do as much research as he could. He approached me as the force protection officer to see if they could get any type of cameras out there just to better protect his platoon. My primary mission, as I saw it, was to keep my men safe and keep them alive in order to complete the mission. Um, so it's hard to do when when you're inserted into a uh, perpetual minefield. And I would say in that area, the term ubiquitous for, for mines is an understatement. If you're trained as a soldier, your brain is constantly scanning the world for danger. Your neuroceptive process will be on high alert constantly. And if you're in the position of being responsible for other people in your platoon, you're going to be doubling that up because your mind is what's called primed for danger. What happens in every single training mission they do? There's an attack because that's what they're actually training. And I've had soldiers say to me, I was trained to think every other step was going to be an ID. In counterinsurgency, it's particularly important to foster a culture of learning because as we say explicitly in the counterinsurgency field manual, the side that learns the fastest typically prevails. There were a certain types of vehicles that were being used by the Taliban, white sedans, and the other thing was motorcycles. And so it seemed that every time that one of the liaisons would brief the colonel on an attack that happened in their unit that day, part of that brief would be that as soon as the attack was over, there was a motorcycle speeding away. So I just put myself 100% in my work. Um, I didn't really care what was going on back here in the States. I mean, deployment alone to Afghanistan is enough to worry about anything, but then not knowing how do I talk to you, how do we communicate? If I don't hear from you, is something bad happening? You know, you have to think how most people think at that age when they're in a relationship. You know, you have a lot of insecurities. You have a lot of fears in general about a new relationship. Now, throw in the military, do you think now they're going to die over there? Here are some big fights that we had while I was in Afghanistan. He wasn't mowing the yard. The neighbors were getting pissed. That sounds kind of normal. You know what I mean? I was having the same conversations as everybody else. But whenever he posted that thing on Facebook, on the public affairs website, um, that frustrated me. He and I got in an argument around the same time that he got that assignment to go be the new platoon leader. There was this thing where you can send in a video to boost morale. It was like 30 seconds just to say, hey, thinking about you, hope you do well. Family readiness group had put out a call and they said, hey, wives and spouses and everything, post a message to your soldier. And he didn't see anything wrong with that. When I sent the video, I don't believe I said anything revealing about the relationship. I thought, oh. They're doing this nice thing. I'm like, okay, I can do it. You know, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Public affairs officer found it, and she was like, hey, what do you want to do with this? I think you should delete it. And I just decided I didn't even want to see it. I saw his face, and I was like, delete it. Of course, as the public affairs officer went gossiping about me. So next thing you know, the brigade commander, Colonel Menez, is walking by me, looking at me a specific way. And they say, everyone is like this super macho uh, uh, unit. There was a rumor that I did hear about his sexuality in the talk. I could see it mattering to some of the people that he would work with if he were to be um, homosexual, maybe detrimental, um, because you're working with around mostly men, and sometimes that can make people uncomfortable. Clint told me that after that incident happened, 
that there were people that would approach him and make like sly remarks. I had a, the brigade surgeon come by my desk and he's got a captain in tow. And the brigade surgeon is like, so Clint, how are those hemorrhoids? And I was like, sir, what are you talking about? He just started laughing and walked off. And so I was just like, yeah, whatever. So I just went back to doing what I was doing, right? And then a couple minutes later, I was like, wait a second, what the fuck? He was upset because I think he just got teased about it pretty bad. And he took it out on me. You are very hypersensitive after a situation like that happens. Um, and you're in a combat zone and you're working 14 hours a day and you're trying to just do your job. He would always talk about like how someone could shoot him in the back or they wouldn't have his back when it came to a gunfight. You know, they would let bad things happen to him if they knew he was gay. I was like, I'm sorry, but you put my life at risk. You put everything at risk here. There, I don't know what kind of idiots are here that want to try to do something. Uh, and you just made my time 100% harder. So it's over, and I threw away my phone. As social animals, belonging equals survival. There are lots of ways that belonging can be threatened. This is where someone who's now discovered, in quotes, to be not fitting in, can have all sorts of very painful stress now that can be traumatizing if they're not able to actually metabolize it, to integrate it, to deal with it. It comes along with a cognitive belief that the self is defective. Most of my life, I thought I was defective, an aberration. One of the reasons why I joined the Army was because I hated myself so much that I thought that there isn't, you know, kind of like the kamikaze pilots, there is an honorable way to die in our society. And when a soldier is killed in battle, you can't get in a, a more honorable death than that. And my family would be honored and my legacy would be honored for the rest of my life. And they would never have to know about me being gay. Because back then, you know, I thought that it was completely dishonorable. So whenever that happened in Afghanistan, I think those thoughts reemerged for the first time in years. And so I was trying to be the best that I could be at my job. But at the same time, I was hoping that I'd get hit by a rocket or something, because then I would have died an honorable death. But if I do get killed, they'll think it's because, you know, I'm gay, so I'm weak. And so that turned into, well, I'm not going to get killed then. And so whenever I got my platoon, it was a huge relief because I knew I was going somewhere without the internet, without computers or anything. All we, had, all we would have was a radio. And I knew that that would be good because it would mean that the soldiers had not heard the rumors. As I was talking to the company commander, Captain Swanson, he told me that, that the platoon that I was about to take over had been pulled back from the heat of the, the fighting in order to do some uh, psychological counseling, some mental health kind of treatment. And so I took the opportunity to sit down with each and every one and I had a little notebook and I would talk to them about their short-term and long-term goals. He just got introduced to us. Guys, we just saying, you know, this is Lieutenant Lawrence, who'll be your new platoon leader. And I remember, I mean, immediately, he was an extremely likable dude. I mean, you can't help but like him when you sit down with him. He seemed really cordial. Uh, he, he 
talk to all of us individually just for a minute, just to just to get a little bit of information about us. You know, I felt like he was doing the right thing, you know, just meeting the troops. You know, the fact of the matter is he had been in the Army a while. And the thing is, when you transition units, you know you're going to have that adjustment period. You know there's going to be new people you're going to meet. So you do what you can to get in. He was talking to us about this camaraderie that he had with his platoon and how squared away they were having been there for 12 hours. I don't know what the, the real right answer is for the first day you show up to a unit, but I think it is don't say anything, listen to everything, and get a lay of the land. I actually think that at the above small team level, they're actually very, very good at integrating and accepting new leaders because there is huge amounts of turnovers, there are huge amounts of movement with and between different operations and different units. It's almost kind of like a let them try first and then if they fail, then there's a, a very significant problem. I was operating on barely any sleep uh, and a lot of coffee. And uh, I was just, it was my job to get the guys back home safe that day, so. July 2nd, we were getting ready to go out on patrol. And generally before every patrol, we'll have a pre-patrol brief. But Lieutenant Lawrence came and addressed all of the lower enlisted. And he began to tell us that he had gotten new intelligence that anybody on a motorcycle was considered to be a threat and we were to engage on site, which was not uh, anything we had heard before. The night before, the platoon sergeant for the Afghan soldiers had told me that their rules of engagement had changed and that they were, from that point on, going to engage motorcycles on site. Essentially, Lawrence is talking about a change in the rules of engagement. Well, rules of engagement are the rules about when you can use force. Uh, when are you authorized, literally, to pull the trigger? The general big idea here is you do everything you can to avoid hurting innocent civilians or damaging their infrastructure. What the rules of engagement say is that there should be an escalation of force, that you should at least notify the person that you're gonna kill. If you keep doing what you're doing, I'm gonna kill you. So you're, you know, a gunner on a truck and there's a car pulling up too fast and you shoot into the ground. Then you shoot into the engine block or whatever, you know, then you shoot them. So you give them a little bit of a chance because there's a lot of cultural barriers, right? So all of these things are intended to keep the support of the population. And during our deployment in 2012, as we understood it, the rules of engagement were pretty simple. You were required to have a hostile action or hostile intent before you were cleared to engage. I understood them perfectly well. We were well trained at that, but while we were briefing, people were coming in and out. And I was frustrated by that. And so I briefed them that the Afghan rules had changed and that our soldiers should not be surprised if they start engaging motorcycles. Lawrence is like, well, the rules of engagement have changed and anybody on a motorcycle is considered engagement criteria now. My commander actually told me this in his brief, is if they're riding a motorcycle in this area, then they're up to no good. Just being on a motorcycle was like holding a weapon. That is what his statement meant. Everyone drives motorcycles in Afghanistan. Everyone. We see about a 1,000 a day. You'll see like a whole family on one motorcycle, with, like a baby, like propped up on the handlebars. You'll see six people on a motorcycle and a sheep. It's nothing to see that. 
And what it sounded like is we're just going to start wholesaling, shooting people. If you're a, a responsible person or a responsible commander and you see something as being used in you know, a ridiculously high percentage of attacks, then you should be alert when you see them. I think we all knew there wasn't something right about it. And in my head, I was trying to take stock of who is actually going to do this and how bad is this actually going to get. So after the patrol brief, I assumed that everybody understood it because nobody came and asked me questions. So I went to both my gun teams. I'm like, take all orders from either myself or Sergeant Ayers, Keith. You hear any other order to engage, do not comply. You wait for us, okay? Just wait for us. So we all went to the exit to our base and a motorcycle with two of the village elders and one of the kids came up to our base. They stopped and got off and started uh, trying to talk to Clint. They essentially were there to kind of air their grievances regarding why we were shooting at people the day before. The day before, Clint had gone up into the tower and told the marksmen to shoot into the village to scare some people. I made it very clear with the sniper, do not shoot any closer than what you're comfortable with. We are not trying to shoot these people. We are shooting at things near them, so they'll think we're shooting at them and they'll come talk to us. No. Okay, this is a village that we typically haven't taken too much firing from. That makes no sense. And at this point, um, they're asking, you know, hey, why were we getting shot at yesterday? And Clint didn't want to listen to it. So I told them we were leaving right then. Uh, I didn't have time to talk to them and that they needed to come back on Friday at 0900. And, um, bring, and I told them to bring 20 people. Just his body, he was screaming at these people. And these are village elders. These are important people in this community. To talk to them like he was talking to them is unheard of. They didn't like that, uh, so that's when I began to count down. And the interpreter was kind of starting to panic. And I remember there being three or four Afghan National Army soldiers behind me while this was all going on. And I was just thinking in my head, like, when are they going to open fire on us? And then as they were leaving, you know, Clinton was like, don't forget to come to the Shura on Friday, to the, you know, which is when they would come to discuss their issues, um, which is really bizarre. I mean, he, he could have just talked to them there. Now, I was uh, very stern with them. I needed to make them understand that, look, you know, if I tell you to leave, you're gonna leave. I didn't know what I was gonna do if they called my bluff. And so they got back on their bike and they, they went back down the street and took a right into Panzai where the shots had been fired into the day before, um, probably to tell them we were assholes. And then we, we stepped out on patrol, like, immediately after they left. When you step out of the strong point, we were facing north. I wanted to use one of our guard towers. They have a machine gun up there, heavy machine gun. So I wanted to stay within their reach as much as possible, just in case anybody came at us. We moved in a single-file line just to mitigate stepping in the IDs so the forward element would clear the way and you always follow suit. I was in the center of the file. I was right next to the whole headquarters element. I was next to Clint and Skelton. I was supposed to be in the center with my gun team. Lawrence is like, no, you'll be in the very rear. And I was like, why the fuck are you putting me in the very rear? That makes no sense. I was in a gun truck. It is a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle with a cruiser weapon on top of on top of my vehicle, the 240. I was driving, and me, Reynoso, and Shiloh moved to Route Cornerbrook kind of overlooking Saren's eye, the village that they were going to maneuver to and enter. 
And the plan was for my gun team to break off when we got towards the village and go to the only house that had like a second floor with an intact roof. And we were gonna set up there and watch everything. We crossed the road. We started getting into the grape rows. Essentially, we, we've got these six to eight foot tall grape berms, and it's basically a wall of mud. So what we've got to do is we've got to do the hard work and we've got to walk over them and climb over them. We're headed toward crossing the road, and before we cross the road is when the motorcycle came down from the north. The motorcycle starts coming toward our element. It wasn't traveling towards us. Uh, it wasn't on the same road that we were crossing. It was traveling basic across our field of vision. And Skelton, Private Skelton, who is our intelligence specialist, called it out. He said, hey, you know, there's a motorcycle, which is just standard. Any, anytime you see anything, you just say it. And I can't see anything. Like, I'm all the way in the rear, and then we just stop moving. The skeleton was climbing over the, the great berm that was nearest to where I was. My RTO and, and myself were still at the bottom, about to climb over one. So at that time, I wasn't able to see the motorcycle. And then I hear over the radio for the truck to watch somebody coming on the motorcycle. Motorcycle comes down the um, path or whatever. Skeleton asks me if he can shoot, and I say yes. I get on the horn to call back to Reynoso and to remind him, do not engage. You, you know, you wait for me, you wait for Ayers. And then you hear rifle fire. And I remember seeing Skelton in the middle of the route shooting kind of over our vehicle, like at those individuals on the motorcycle. When Skelton fired a miss, I was not surprised. And they heard those shots. And they stopped their bike a couple hundred meters away on the other side of the Grape Rose. And they looked at us like, hey, you know, what's going on? And they started walking in our general direction. And the Afghan National Army officers in the front were, you know, waved them back. And we're like, no, just, just wait. They were standing by their bikes, waiting for us to approach them. And Clint kept yelling at us to shoot them. And he said, you know, why isn't anybody firing? Everybody could hear gunfire. And especially the people without radios were confused as to what was going on. In that situation, they are counting on the NCO nearest to them to tell them what to do. I never fired. Because why are you gonna fire on someone that's not firing on you? I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I didn't fire because I felt like it was an unlawful command. I felt like it was an illegal order. If an order is immoral, unethical, or illegal, you're obliged to disobey that order. So nobody on the ground would fire their weapon at that point. And so he just got on the radio. He got on Thomas's radio to the trucks. I hear the radio for Shiloh to engage the motorcycle. I'm like, do not engage, you know? And we're literally having like a, a screaming match into the microphone. And I think there was another order. And I'm screaming, I'm probably calling him every name in the book. And then in confirmation, you can't just shoot motorcycles, you know, this isn't the ROE. And then I think yet another order. And then you hear the 240 open up. Shiloh opened fire on the motorcycle. When I heard the 240 pop, like, I just stopped moving. It just, at that moment, we all knew, I think we, everybody knew um, that he murdered people. We knew it, and that ball was already rolling, and this was where everything was gonna fall apart. The platoon's version of the events is ill-informed. There's about 100 different, you know, versions of what happened there, but from my experience from what actually went down is that when my guy fired at it and it kept coming, then that signaled uh, hostile intent and hostile act at that point because he didn't stop.
uh, immediately. From the time that Skelton fired to the time that I ordered the gun truck to fire, I knew that we had to close the loop on it. Uh, warning shots are not authorized. This all happened within seconds. And so without even thinking about it anymore, I just immediately told the gun truck to fire. When he kept going, that was a hostile act for me. And so, you know, the rules of engagement allow the ground force commander to make that decision, except for, in this case. These can be life or death calls with consequences for either decision that you make. And you have to keep in mind sometimes that the decision not to take action has consequences too. It's not always the safe or the best course of action. But was this someone who sought to do what was right, or is this really egregious and someone who just flat disregarded procedures? We know that as soon as a leader makes an error, everybody else disengages from them, and it's very, very hard to win back their trust. It's one thing to make a iffy decision it's another thing to just deliberately murder someone. Whatever had happened there was so strange, so out of the ordinary, that these infantrymen, they were like, that's fucked up. They didn't find any weapons, any radios. Uh, they did find scissors and cucumbers and ID cards, which ID cards are not something you'd ever expect to find on an insurgent. We walked right by them. I mean, I saw the bodies myself. We were like, hey, you know, they got IDs on them. And Clint told us to just forget we saw the IDs. And so I was like, all right, we just got to get past this. And I think that's where I made a critical mistake was to um, mislead my company commander, Captain Swanson, over the radio. He tried to get somebody to radio up that the bodies couldn't be searched because he didn't want to report that we hadn't found anything, any evidence of activity. There was obviously no communication devices, no weapons. This first time I noticed something was wrong is when I saw a couple of women and, and I remember this, this couple of little kids and stuff and they were all huddled together and they were, they were crying and, you know, pointing at the body and pointing at all of us and everything. And when I saw them, I went into I don't know, like shock, or I went into this panic. And in my all of my army hyping up training and so on, kill the enemy, kill them. So all that, all that, you know, psychological pre preparation for war. Nowhere in it were there women who were crying. The Taliban doesn't have family. I, I didn't even consider that the Taliban has family. So when I saw them, it reminded me of my family. And I was like, God, that's what my family would do. And, and it was like, just like the, the wheels were turning in my head. And I was like, dear God, these were civilians. And so that's where I just started to panic a little bit. And you can hear Lawrence like screaming at these people. Like, yeah, you make sure you come to the shirt on Friday. Bring all the men, you know? And he's like pointing at kids and he's telling the interpreter, you tell these kids get out of here or by the count of five, I'm gonna hit butt stroke him. You know, and he starts counting. You know, they were really upset, and he pointed his weapon at them, and he said, shut the fuck up or I'll kill you too. I'm not going to threaten somebody else's kid. I'm not going to threaten any kid. It doesn't make sense. And Ayers is like, sir, come on, we have to go. 
like it's getting out of hand. It was a really heavy atmosphere back at the base uh, immediately following that. Keith and I are both just like in a haze, man. We can't, <laughs> we don't even know what to do. So one of the things when I got back, I realized that a couple of the NCOs were frustrated. And so I came in there and I, uh, I wanted to know what they were you know, frustrated about. And Lawrence comes like bebopping around. He's like, man, that was, that was great. You know, uh, you know, we engaged this. And I said, bullshit. This is bullshit. You killed civilians. You did it. The only person that I remember objecting or saying anything about anything was the platoon sergeant, Sergeant Ayers. Literally, the only thing I remember him saying is, we can't be doing that, sir. That's all he said. And he gets this really calm look on his face, and he goes, well, how are we going to spin this? I said, I'm not spinning shit. That morning, I was just kind of messing around, doing whatever I would normally do. And I remember, got a report that 1st Platoon had been in contact, had engaged some dudes, had some people they had killed. And then I remember a report coming from the squadron level down to our command post saying, hey, we're getting some, some information from the Afghans that there was a shooting that occurred, and it was like a local leader who you guys killed. And this guy is not involved in the insurgency whatsoever. He's a guy who's actually been very friendly to us. What is going on? We knew that we had a moral and legal obligation to report what had actually happened and not what our platoon leader wanted to report. And so Skelton, uh, he was one of the first people to get a chance. He went back up to the cop and he turned him in. In prison, we call that snitch. Uh, but the guy had an ethical concern. He thought something was wrong ethically and that's the way he framed it anyway. I don't know what his real motivations were. And so I, I applaud him for going forward and telling somebody. I think if Skelton had not reported, um, then nobody else would have. I think any one of us, given the opportunity, would have done the same thing. Uh, I think it was just a matter of, um, well, who's going back up to see the command first? I remember PFC Skelton approached Captain Swanson on his own, away from everyone else, and said, hey, sir, uh, we actually were able to do a battle damage assessment on those guys. We were able to search your bodies, and this is what we found. And he laid down, like, basically the guys, like, personal belongings on the table. The guys didn't have any weapons on them. They didn't have any bomb-making materials on them. I remember it was just, like, a little pair of scissors and, like, a little, like, tobacco pouch. And that's kind of when we knew something, something had happened that wasn't supposed to happen. So Swanson pulled 1st Platoon back from Hands Eye. We went ahead and separated Lawrence from 1st Platoon. When I got up to the company headquarters, the commander came in and he told me that he was going to suspend me uh, pending an investigation. So he told me to go in, into the tent and don't talk to my soldiers. I remember him sitting there acting like nothing's wrong. I, why, why am I here right now? And he's like sitting there in his body armor, like I'm ready to go back out there. During that time, I started noticing more and more of my soldiers arriving. They were all going into the defect. We put first platoon in our like dining facility, which was like just a tent, some tables in it. Once we gathered everybody in there, I issued everyone a sworn statement, a document, and I had each of those soldiers in there write down the questions I had for them, and then underneath that, they were to address it in the best way that they could. And Captain Swanson's like, I need you to be as detailed and as accurate as possible. 
as these sworn statements were coming in, started to paint a picture of a very severe incident that had occurred. I would basically take one of the sworn statements out of the tent, and I'd bring it for our commander, for our, you know, our next higher level, Colonel Hounderback. Hey, sir, you need to read this. This is, this is bad news. This is bad news right here. And Colonel Howard was sitting there, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is not good. When they opened the door, I could see them all sitting around one big, uh, in like a circle. And so I knew it was about to happen. Uh, I knew that everybody was about to get on the same page except for me. There's, there's no way that could happen. You know, I was there. I didn't hear any, hey, this is what we're going to say about Lawrence. I, I, in fact, these guys were, were mostly silent because they had just been a part of something that was extremely unjust. About an hour later, Captain Swanson is like, hey, man, I need to talk to you. And Captain Swanson looks me dead in the face and goes, did you guys make this up? And I said, no, sir. He's like, you know what? They're all the same. Every one of them outlined almost the same incident. He's like, I had to ask because you guys either made it up and all got on the same page, or this is really bad and everybody saw it happening. I know in situations like that, you can't really lie. You know, you're on your own, so probably not allowed. Most of the soldiers were in a gray pro and couldn't see what was going on. Um, and so the perspective was very limited for everybody. And so, you know, whenever the soldiers went back and started, you know, talking to each other and trying to piece together their story, they all saw a different part of the story. I mean, when they talked to all of us, not just those of us on the ground, but those of us who were watching over the camera, the helicopter pilot who responded, they got two pictures. They got one picture painted by Clint and then one picture painted by everybody else. The United Nations says civilians are increasingly in the line of fire. The ongoing war continues to devastate the lives of its civilian population. They were killed in NATO airstrikes. We cannot tolerate civilian casualties. Not even one. Therefore, the right mechanism 
has to be established, foolproof, to avoid civilian casualties. Reducing civilian casualties to the absolute minimum is an imperative, really, in any fighting, but especially in a counterinsurgency. Civilian casualties, I think, are part of the bedrock of the way terrorist groups recruit. They will take real things, and then they will embellish them with lots and lots of images. They're trying to pull on people's heartstrings, and very effectively, I mean, what they're doing is they're weaponizing people's empathy. This is why our military worked so hard to try to prevent these things from happening. It was not only ethically wrong and troubling and upsetting, but also it was defeating us. Nature abhors a vacuum. You kill two people, that's immediately gonna cause a spike in activity by the enemy. The trend has shown that in Afghanistan since 2001. Civilian casualties happen, Taliban activity picks up. Things got a lot worse after that in terms of taking fire. I recall thinking at the time, I don't know if we're all gonna make it home now. I could not tell you how many times we were fired at after that, but I can tell you they hit trucks with rockets. They hit a truck with a recoilless rifle. Coilless rifle is an extremely large weapon that we hadn't seen up until that point. The enemy was able to get a lot closer to us. They were able to basically walk through the village and get between the village and our base because they knew that at that point the villagers weren't going to say anything. All the people we got pissed off, you know, switched sides. Said, well, the Americans aren't taking care of us. They shot and killed a bunch of us, so we'll call the Taliban and get them out of here. It completely upended our entire mission, and it changed from a feeling of succeeding to just a feeling of surviving. After the platoon got busted up, which sucks, our squad, per se, got split up, too because Mike got taken away. So it's kind of like, you're not only tearing my platoon apart, you're tearing our team apart now. Some of the guys that I talked to when they came back, they said that the people in their units were just treating them terribly, just giving them shit and telling them they were blue falcons, which is a, it's a term the military uses. It means buddy fucker. Basically saying your platoon really fucked up. You know, it's like, to me, that was, slap in the face, like, who are you to say what we did and what we didn't? You don't know. I was ostracized for it, belittled for it, because they're just Afghans, fuck them. Now, why are you letting it bother you so much? It's like, stop talking about it, no one gives a shit. And I had no problem telling them, you weren't fucking there. They're human beings, and it was murder. day of my life. It made me question why I served. The last thing you want to see is civilians get killed, 
period. And then I felt guilty that I wasn't there to help shield the guys. Because those guys are my family. Leadership, respect, and trust are, are pretty big. If I respect you and I trust you, I'll get you back no matter what. We join for a reason. We raise our right hand together. We're fighting the same fight. Now, if I don't trust you, am I willing to take a bullet for you? Probably not. I think it's really worn on me a lot, just over time. And I think it's really eroded my, my sense of security, my sense of accomplishment in the military. And it's hard to make sense of everything else that I did um, in light of that one incident. Why you can be a soldier, you, you put up with all the stupid bullshit you do, is because there's something more there. I mean, there's a reason you're doing it. If you take away that, you know, sense of duty and honor, you're just doing a shitty job you hate. Now, we had a deployment where we had the potential to take something home with us, like we accomplished something. Even though it was just our little slice of Afghanistan that we improved or made these people's lives just a little bit safer, that's something. After that, we had less than nothing. And I think that was really difficult for all of us to kind of come to terms with, is that we lost all, all everything we worked for. And we lost each other. So. Prior to joining the Lawrence defense team, one of the main things that stood out was that American soldiers were testifying against their lieutenant. Uh, ordinarily, you wouldn't see that. Ordinarily, you'd see them protecting one another and actually giving their lives for one another. In light of the fact that so many people had testified against him, I had to meet him in person. And I realized that we could really go to bat for this young man. One of the first things that stood out in my review of Clint's case was that CID didn't take the initial statements from the 1st platoon. The command did. That was, to me, troubling because it's a departure from what you would ordinarily expect. CID stands for the Criminal Investigation Command, and it's the equivalent of civilian detectives. Having the unit do it first suggests there might have been a rush to judgment. It's very clear to me that um, there were civilian casualties around that time in Afghanistan uh, and other places on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, quite literally, it was the chain of command overcorrecting and overreacting. There were political influences that affected the Army's decisions with regard to Clint Lorenz. Every soldier and United States military member in Afghanistan was paranoid about us becoming the United States Army of Vietnam. They had then had the message, you have to take this seriously, and you have to come down hard on this. But because the Army said Lawrence was a murderer, because the Army did not disclose evidence that shows he's not, 
those soldiers believe that their service in Afghanistan is now besmirched and tainted by murder. So on July 2nd, that ambush was triggered and Clinton Lawrence was in the kill zone. So I hope you enjoyed that uh, documentary there. So that case there is the case of, of Clint Lawrence. And basically what that comes down to is his interpretation of this situation and how he interpreted what he saw, whether he was within the, the rules and the standard operating procedures, and if not, whether he knowingly committed a criminal act, right? And, and that, what, what this does is it defines this problem space, this problem space uh, of, um, of, of decision-making, right? So, so one of the things that we talk about, psychologically speaking, is a lot of people have this base assumption that decision making is a is a rational thing right so you 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 have two courses of action right course of action a course of action b you weigh the two of them together and based on what has the best utility if you will or, or, or is the best outcome you choose that one right you are a rational actor and therefore if you choose an outcome that is negative by extension, you are an irrational actor, right? You acted irrationally or you made a bad decision. Well, the real, the kind of the real study of decision making kind of says, well, well hang on a minute. That's the problem with that is if you end up in a, in a situation of high uncertainty, you can find yourself in a situation where multiple courses of action can, or each course of action can have multiple possible outcomes, some good, some bad. And therefore, there is no, on the face of it, I suppose, immediately better choice because both choices have the potential to be good and both choices have the potential to be bad. Really? Really? Okay, let's just move you. Thank you, darling. So if you think about the Clint Lorenz one, right, and I'm not going to talk about his culpability or blame at the moment, but one of the ways you can look at that is... So we have this, this situation of individuals coming towards him on motorbikes. And there are two possible outcomes for the situation. Oh, sorry, two possible uh, uh, manifestations, if you will, of that situation. The first is that they are fighting age males with weapons, insurgent, uh, insurgent attackers, and they're going to harm or shoot his platoon. Right? The other is that they are civilians on a bike ride on their bike, going about their daily day in Afghanistan, posing no threat to anybody. Now, assuming that Clint Lawrence doesn't know which one of those is true, then there are two possible outcomes for each of the actions that he takes. So for the first action, let's say he doesn't do any, he doesn't order a mission and he doesn't use offensive force, right? If he doesn't use offensive force and they are insurgents, there is a strong possibility that Clint Lawrence and all of his troops are now at risk and could be killed. If they are an offensive force, if they are insurgents and he uses force, congratulations, you killed insurgents, right? So decision A, good outcome, bad outcome. Which one? We don't know. Decision B, don't use force. Sorry, do use force. Sorry, I've got that wrong. Do use force. If they are insurgents and you do use force, congratulations, well done, Clint Lawrence. If they are in, aren't insurgents and you do use force, uh, you've, you know, you've killed civilians, right? Bad outcome. So for both choices A and B, 
there is a possible there is a good and a negative outcome based on what is the truth of the scene and the problem is that Clint Lorenz in theory doesn't know what the truth of the scene is right so if you think about it that way each decision this decision comes down to one thing right and and, and from a psychological standpoint i would call it error management theory right so what is the we, we would obviously like the good outcome to happen, right? Obviously, we would either like him to shoot, the, to, to use offensive force if they're insurgents and not use offensive force if they're civilians, right? That's good. But let's say that we're going to have to accept that the bad outcome happens, right? So error management theory would say, well, what is the worst possible outcome of the two bad outcomes? Bad outcome one, civilian forces are killed. Bad outcome two, US Army troops are killed. You see where we're going with this, right? So what's interesting with the army is that they have actually, you know, they, they, you can see their thinking on this decision kind of change over time. Originally, they were very much, you know, protect our troops at all costs. And some work that was done early on, myself, my own work included and others, commented, you know, that there was a very high number of civilian casualties. And it's because in situations like this, the army would always prioritise making the decision that made sure they were safe, right? It's fine. Uh, and then General Stanley McChrystal actually turned up in 2011 and said, basically, the, the actual quote, which I love is, you know, what do we not understand? We're going to lose this fucking war if we keep killing civilians. So he actually changed the calculus and said, in these types of situations, your number one priority is you actually have to protect the civilians rather than the, the, the troops. You have to you have to civilian casualty protection. Sorry, civilian casualty minimization is the most important thing in war. Right. Completely changed the way they made decisions. Trump came in and uh, those decisions again changed. Right? And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. There are flaws with each and there are strengths with each. But what I'm saying is that understanding or how that decision is navigated requires you to accept what is the least costly error. Okay? So this is this psychological concept called kind of least worst decisions, right? And it's in this grey area that most of the hardest, most complicated decisions occur in life, right? And it's exactly that. It's when option A gives you two potential outcomes, good and bad, and option B gives you two potential outcomes, good and bad, right? We can see it in the case of the police shooting, in many, many of the cases of police shooting that we see, right? Option A, use offensive force. Good outcome, you protected the lives of fellow officers, fellow civilians, the, other, the, the offender was dangerous. Outcome B, you killed an innocent individual who posed no threat. Don't use offensive force, right? Outcome A, the individual posed no threat. You didn't use offensive force. Everyone lives. Everyone walks away. Everyone's okay. Option B, the individual did pose a threat. And we saw again, this, this week there was dash cam footage of a, um, uh, a gun runner, I believe in New Mexico, pulled over. Officer goes to do a routine traffic cop. The guy gets out with an assault rifle and shoots the officer, right? Individual. Posed a threat, officer didn't use offensive force, bad outcome happening there, right? So we have to think of these decisions almost as judging misses and making sure that the error that occurs or that we avoid the most costly error to us at that time. That's from a psychological standpoint. The issue is that in a lot of these situations, no error is acceptable, Right. The, 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 in, in Afghanistan, the death of a civilian isn't acceptable. The death of a soldier isn't acceptable. In the streets of America, the death of a civilian isn't acceptable. And the death of police officers isn't acceptable. 
right? And these are the problems that we have to deal with from a psychological standpoint. So what we have to dig into, again, we can't judge. Uh, Arazanu in 1995 said it about NASA scientists, that in high uncertainty decision-making, outcome can be an artifact of luck as much as it is good decision-making. And I've interviewed soldiers who have made very bad decisions and they're lucky that the outcome was a good one, right? So what we have to do as psychologists is we have to dig into the case, right? We have to think about the decision-making of the individual, the motivations, what was driving them, what was their processing? How were they thinking their way through the situation? Were they thinking about it in a, in a, in a all possible opportunities way or were they driven by biases or terrible decision-making or anger or whatever it was, right? It's this culpability is at the heart of the decision-making. So with the Clint Lawrence case, what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, was, did Clint Lawrence make a good or a bad decision in the situation that he was posed in? Now, the emerging evidence is actually that he made a bad decision, that he did not handle that situation, acknowledging the uncertainty, did not handle that situation with the nuance, patience and weigh all of his options. Instead, he just rushed straight ahead and went with the offensive option driven by negative decision-making processes and biases, right? And, and actually, there's a lot of um, really interesting and sad reporting around the what that decision has done to kind of those around him and those who were in his, uh, in his platoon at the time. But the other thing about that case that I think is really interesting and very, very much resonates with, with, with the times today is Clint Lawrence then became a if you will, uh, I suppose, a, a kind of, not a hero, but, but his case became a political case because there was now a, a political narrative of you cannot hold troops culpable for actions in Afghanistan because if you do, you're not supporting the troops, right? So actually, President Trump, um, about a week after we recorded that documentary, President Trump actually uh, pardoned Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant uh, Lawrence. Is it Lieutenant or Lieutenant Philip? I can't remember. Uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Lawrence. And he basically then went on Fox News and all this kind of stuff. And basically he was held up as kind of, you know, it, it, it got folded into this kind of narrative of, you know, support. You have to support the armed forces. And, and supporting the armed forces means not holding them culpable when bad outcomes occur. And now I think if you take that concept and you apply it to what we're seeing today, we have the exact same thing. You know, we have one one argument is, you know, we we have to support the troops. Oh, sorry, we have to support the police and therefore we cannot hold them culpable for their actions. Or we have to hold police culpable for all actions, irrespective of decision making process. Now, look, let's be abundantly honest. Those two polar opposites, neither one works. Neither one works. Right. So what we have to do, and this is the challenge, and this is where I'm going to challenge you on Thursday, is we have to almost, we have to think about the outcome, and especially if there is a systematic pattern in the outcome, I'm not diminishing that or minimising that, that's something we have to think about. If there are patterns in the outcomes, there is evidence there perhaps of a systematic or superordinate cause here, but at the single case level, the questions we have to ask as forensic psychologists are what was their decision making process? What cognitive processes were they going through? How were they weighing their options? What were they thinking? And what led to their actions? That is at the heart of criminal psychology. And to be honest, 
That's actually at the heart of a legal case as well. We have to do, I have to do, um, when I do expert testimony in, in murder trials now, about the criminal's decision-making, it's exactly that. It's drilling into what were they thinking? Did they make the best possible decision that they could in that situation? What did they think was going on? What was their assessment of the situation? And how did that impact the course of action that they chose? And how is that connected or disconnected from the actual situation? We have to separate reality and subjective reality, which is what they thought was going on when they made their decision. And then we have to handle the ethical, legal, criminal and psychological implications of that. So look, I, I can't make you any promises this week. I, I promise you it will be difficult. Not in terms of the, I'm not saying a fucking quiz. It, it, it's difficult to think about. And it really, right now it's really difficult to think about. And we have to ask ourselves, and I think we're going to culminate to a point where we have to ask ourselves a very, very difficult question around what we as a society deem to be the most, the most acceptable negative outcome, even if, no, even if we can't accept that we want a negative outcome. But anyway, look, I promise you honesty, I promise you we'll jump into it. And I, I tell you this, very few people are as experienced in this area of psychology as me. So at the very least, you will hear hopefully the best rendition possible in, in a time when perhaps we need this lecture more than ever. So thank you, everybody. Buckle up. Let's have fun this week, okay? I, I, I truly wanna wanna learn together about the kind of the psychology of decision making. So that's what we're gonna do. I'll see you at Thursday. Losing my mind. Oh, I, I